give up, don't allow disaster. Don't you give up, don't you let away. Talking about a forever after. Don't you give up, don't you dare give in. Don't you give up, don't you dare give in. And remember, don't you give in and allow disaster, which is why we're all going to be watching the Democratic debate tonight. Woo woo. Right? I know, I can't and, wait. And, and rooting for Bernie. Yeah. We, feel we, the burn. Feel the burn, everyone. Are you feel so, the burn? I feel the burn. There outstanding. Well, I'd love Hillary. I mean, I would love to support a woman, but. Uh, uh, if, if Hillary say. wins, we all have to be behind her one thousand percent for 2000. many reasons. Two thousand. But there's no question that there's a an enormous distinction in terms of the political revolution for the things that our listeners yes want to see happen. Progressive. You need to change the system as the it system. currently is, exactly, um, so that we could all share in the uh, in and the that is again. the distinction that Bernie makes. That it's not just about him; it's about a revolution. And I will say, I have a bumper sticker on my car that one is, you know, Bernie for president, and the other side is honk if you want a revolution. And I forgot that I had put it on the car, and I've been beeping the crap out of you. And I was driving to, I was driving north the past four weekends in a row, and people are beeping, but I think, ah, you know, it's just New Yorkers, and then. Somebody drives by and gives me, hey, big thumbs up, let go. (laughs) And then I remembered, and people beep, because people are ready for a revolution. They're ready, and we're we're ready. And we're ready for you to call in today. Someone, do me a favor. Call in. (laughs) Show us you're listening. 888-874-4888. Come on. 874-888-874-4888. We have a terrific guest. You're going to want to ask him questions, but just call in. You know, to, to just show us there's some life out there, and you're not all simply uh, listening to only Harry Harrison while you're driving the car. Um, welcome back to Women's Rights in the Workplace radio show on the Progressive Radio Network uh, here in lovely uh, Midtown Manhattan, which is now way too expensive to actually live in anymore. But we are uh, we are sending our show out over the uh, internet airwaves here, and we have a uh, Phil Hines in the studio joins us today because Deborah and I, and we've told you each time we have brought guests on the show, we like to share with you relevant, empowering information from other attorneys who you wouldn't otherwise get to listen to and ask questions and listen in depth to the, the practice areas that they concentrate in. And you'll notice that all the lawyers that we bring on the show serve the individual interests of human beings. None of them are corporate lawyers. They're not working. They're not government lawyers. They are individual lawyers who actually represent the most vulnerable people among us. Um, and this is why I went to law school. This is what, this is why I believe you'll hear Phil talk about what he does as a lawyer, as a civil rights lawyer. And again, if you have any questions about his important um, the practice area, give us a call at 888-874-4888 and we'll put you on the air and Phil will do his best, as will I, to answer any questions you have. Um, Phil is a partner in the New York City-based firm, Heldon Hines, LLP, which is a general litigation firm. But Phil Hines himself concentrates his practice on civil rights cases involving police misconduct or correctional officer misconduct, false arrest, malicious prosecution, um, all kinds of 
um, tragedies and violence that befall the most vulnerable folks among us who are in jail. Phil represents them. In fact, he was telling me earlier he gets many letters a day from people in prison um, that he has to sort through to see who he can help um, and is able to you know, represent in court. Um, so we want to just start right out um, talking to Phil. Welcome. Thank you both for having me. You're Excited to be here. You're quite welcome. So let's just jump right in and say you were talking, and I didn't even know this, and although I was a criminal lawyer for many years, you mentioned that you represent a man now yeah. who is um, a diabetic <coughs> who fell behind in his child, su child support payments. Child support payments. Child support payments, and again, not, you know, we're not... Uh, condoning that, but fell behind in his child support payments. What is the what was the upshot and the result? He was imprisoned. He was sent to Rikers Island, a notorious jail here in New York City, and I believe this was, did you say the sentence was six months if he doesn't pay it? Correct. So six months rotting in Rikers Island, which has had now a long history, but a present history of m many abuses, a lot of uh, officer on inmate violence, inmate on inmate violence, it's just... Children. Children, exactly. Children. A children, yeah. a kid, uh, you would probably know more about this, but I just was reading this of a, 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 some kid, this was not, I don't think, a death case, but a kid who was like in there for five years or something, like awaiting, you know, trial on some nonsense, right? Before sure, that happens a lot. It happens uh, it ha a lot? I, I <laughs> unfortunately, it happens a lot. I have two clients now um, who, because of backlogs in the Bronx County District Attorney's Office and the way that the system is set up to delay... Um, prosecution. One person spent over five years in jail awaiting trial to be acquitted. Another woman spent Wait, about... Wait, he was acquitted or he, he will be acquitted? He was acquitted. He was, he now, was, he was yeah. charged with uh, murder and he was acquitted five years later. And another um, client of mine, a young, lovely young woman, was um, charged with attempted murder of a four-month-old and uh, she was acquitted recently. Now it's After bad three and a half years in jail. So it's bad enough. Let's just let me just let's just first take a step back for people who kind of don't understand that because it's like okay, they're murder and they're in jail. You know, it's too cushy for them to begin with. Let's just talk about this. This is pre-trial detention, right? So sure. everybody's presumed innocent, right? Correct. And clearly, if one has money, typically in most cases, you're making bail, right? There's a there's a certain amount of money that you put up in order to come back to court and you're you're spending those five years waiting for trial if it takes five years from the comfort of your own home sure. coming back and forth sure. to court. So the only reason people rot for five years waiting for trial is their indigence, right? Their indigence or the bail is excessive for their particular financial situation. So they may have a job, they may have a modest income, but they can't afford what might be a Otherwise modest sentence to, or modest bail for somebody who's working as a banker or a lawyer mm -hmm. or something like that? Like what? Give an example. Like this guy well, was like riding a, there for five years because he couldn't pay twenty thousand dollars. The bail the bail was higher, and you know, if the bail was lower in his particular situation, he probably wouldn't be able to yeah, pay but, it either. But, but, here's right. the, but here's the point: right. murder cases are different because yeah. it would even even potentially rich person is on remand, right? Depending on the status, I'm saying that there are cases in Rikers where they're held for five years and all the while perhaps beaten up, and some of them die in custody. But for petty larceny, I'm talking about. There are there are plenty of cases where people are being held on $500 right. bail that they can't right. afford. And so therefore, if they're held on a misdemeanor, meaning that the maximum sentence is a city year, they could be spending, assuming they want to 
contest their guilt or they want to prove their innocence, they right. could be spending longer than a year right. in, in jail and what because they can't afford the, the right. bail and that the system is set up or the system is effectuated to a way where they can't move their case any faster to establish their innocence. So oftentimes they will take a plea right. to something to that, get out to get out. So somebody who may have um, multiple petty arrests or, or misdemeanors, violations, things like that, they may cop to a yeah um, a small sentence of time served, whether it be a week, two weeks, even though they are not guilty right. or they have plenty of defenses, justifications, whatever mm-hmm. it might be. But in order to get out of the system, to get out of jail, they will plead guilty to whatever their legal aid, usually attorney, can and can work out with the DA's office. And right. so... That's how plenty of convictions are right. act- actually obtained is through right. plea bargain. You know, there's been plenty of you know prominent judges on the federal and on the the state court system that have you know decried the 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 justice system in that you know the amount of cases that a DA a district attorney's office will take to trial has dropped tremendously from where it was even 10 years ago in that you know all these cases now that would have been either dropped or you know pled down you know they are people are taking pleas on them rather than you know they're not going to go to trial because of the backlog and the DA's office is not so um, interested in trying them either they don't have the evidence or they have witness problems or whatever it might be so they will put out a plea out there so that the per, you know they can right. wrap it up in a nice bow and move on to the next case. Mm-hmm. But what makes it outrageously coercive in a system where there's two criminal justice systems, one for the rich and one for everyone else, is that if you're in court and the, if you plead guilty, you'll get six months, let's say, which is time served because you've been in, right? or you could wait and prove your innocence but stay in while you wait for trial another year or sure. six months or two years. How can you not plead guilty and walk free but I've I've had this happen many times where you know the judge will you know a person's been in custody for a year or two years trying to establish their innocence and a judge is saying they're you know you're held on a misdemeanor the most you're going to do is a year you've already got the time in take the plea and let's move on you know the judge wants to clear the docket the the DA wants to the prosecutor wants to move on to the next case and the person who wants to establish their innocence is you know pressured on both ends from his own defense attorney who would like to turn his attention to uh, somebody else or the DA's office that wants to turn their attention and the court that has a you know however many other hundreds of cases on the docket so there's a lot of pressures being put on um, people who are in jail to you know either take the plea or certainly if they've um, done more time than they would have possibly been found, you know, <coughs> sentenced to if they were found guilty, you know, it, it's it's a catch-22. That's criminal. Are you going sp- to spend three years in jail to establish your innocence when you could be out in t- three weeks? Well, except that when you get out, finding a job when you have a criminal record is, Absolutely. I don't want to say impossible, Absolutely. but very close to impossible. Mm-hmm. 
And so I can appreciate why somebody would sit there for three years so that they don't have a criminal record. Well, your resume is going to have a really big gap in it when you say you spent three years in the House of Detention for men. It's a problem either way. So that does become... Very few people, I think, have that wherewithal to say, I'm going to stay in Rikers Island so that I can get a job in Mickey D's. But I can understand why somebody would want to. Well, 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 let's talk about this. Because I think we would all agree there's economic injustice and there's racial injustice. And in this city that we, you and I are lawyers in, and I was a public defender and now a civil rights lawyer, but employment, and you're representing people mostly against the municipality, New York City, New York State, um, for these abuses and violence. And again, most of them are are probably um, people who these things may not have happened to if they were uh, members of the Lucky Sperm Club and born into another family, right? Sure. Well, most of these are your sure. clients. Or if they were a different color. Or a different color. And the or fact they lived is, in a different neighborhood. Okay, so let, me, so let me ask Perfect. you something. The, so the man who, I didn't, ever, I didn't ask you this before, the man who uh, went to prison for not paying child support was a person of color? No. Okay, so that was that had in that case was just it was a he got into the sort of gun sights of the prosecutor's office. Why was there anything special about that case? Nothing special. I, I, there's people that I've come across that have owed a lot more in child support that remain Wandering walking free, free. creating pe- more children. But, but, how, but how, why did he? But being an incarceration will obviate his po- the possibility of him actually getting the money to pay the child support. Probably. What's sure. the rationale of putting a guy away who can't then possibly take care of his kid? The It's entirely punitive, and it's entirely um, designed to uh, not necessarily um, create a, um, a test case or to, to make him the, the scapegoat, but it's definitely, you know, if there's... There's plenty of cases out there where this happens to, and if somebody knows somebody this happens to, then all of a sudden you're like, well, I don't want to end up in jail. I'm going to pay my child support. Um, there's other options that they have available to them. They can revoke driver's licenses. They don't have to uh, incarcerate you. Um, Why can't they garnish your wages and do the things that they civil, can, civil things? They can garnish wages also. Um, they can, um, I believe they can put levies on property and things like that. Um, this particular individual didn't have a job. Um, he was certainly entitled to, I would think, a downward modification of his child support based upon the fact that he was disabled and didn't have a, a an income. But the fact of the matter is, is that when you have substantial arrears, um, the courts are, regardless of your financial system, if you don't move for a downward modification, the courts are not going to give you one voluntarily, and therefore... To take, they view it as taking away money from a child, and so they're not inclined to do that. Okay, so let's just get down to the sort of the brass tacks. What a good guy, lawyer like you, does with things like this, which is he gets into this client. Um, how old is he? He's in his fifties. Man in his fifties, health issues, diabetic, has an insulin pump. He's thrown in right. So in court that day, he's you know taken in in in, in bracelets, right, and, t- and iron handcuffs. Sure, he's he advises the court. Who advise, the judge advise, puts in the, his his uh, sentence her sentencing order states that he's diabetic and he's required to the corrections department is required to provide him whatever medical care he, they, okay. is necessary medical to, attention sure so he gets to Rikers Island there there is a private or a provider that, that provides which is probably part of the reason too that's privatized the medical care 
Yes, the city is, has a contract with a company called Horizon Health Services, okay. uh, who manages the care of um, medical care and, and other ancillary services like dental and, and mental health sometimes for uh, prisoners at Rikers Island. So when he gets admitted, he's supposed to have a checkup? When you get Right, so when you get taken into custody, you go through what's called intake. And during intake, they do a um, an interview, or they do a, an examination. They ask you questions about your current health status, your past, your your medications that you're on, any medical conditions you might have, um, and they will screen you essentially for whether or not you know you're. In part, it has to do with your housing assignment. If you're um, of a certain Disability, then you're housed in a in a building with that can accommodate your in theory your disabilities and things like that. Um, because he was um, civilly confined and not in custody pursuant to an arrest, he was not eligible for the facility on Rikers Island that handles diabetic inmates, and so he was sort of in limbo for about three days until they figured out what he wanted to do, whether they were going to um, keep him in-house and try to manage him within the clinic area or they were going to find some other way of, or some other place to put him. And so during that period of time, they did nothing. He, he Obviously, he's diabetic. He needs insulin. They didn't provide him any insulin. Um, Friday, Saturday, Sunday? Friday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Right? Okay. And come Sunday, um, they realized that um, he's in pretty grave danger and so they decided they were going to transport him to um, the hospital uh, Bellevue Hospital prison ward for presumably better care um, they well Bellevue is a, is a good city hospital right certainly probably better than whatever they had there on the on in the prison well Bellevue is a Decent city hospital. However, the prison ward oh, it's prison ward there. is yeah. not the same care that you would get <laughs> right. on the other floors okay. of, of okay. the hospital. Okay. So, um, it, it's basically like you—it's a jail in the middle of oh, a hospital. Okay. So okay. you have your your, you know, your cell, which is your hospital room, and you know your 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 freedoms are certainly limited. Yeah. You know, it's not as if you can, you know, just buzz the the floor nurse and she'll right. come in okay. and she'll do whatever it is oh, you okay. need so um, okay. okay but did they so what was the upshot of his condition and the treatment they stabilize him did he lose anything uh they they were unable to stabilize him they he they refused to provide him or return to him his insulin pump which had been regulating him his his blood sugar levels had been giving him the requisite dosage for years before all this happened uh oh my god the, the city the Department of Correction refused to give it to him. The the Bellevue personnel requested that he be it be returned to him because they can't control his levels, and it was apparently against DOC policy. So um, he was not allowed to have it at all while he was in custody, either with uh, the Department of Correction or at the prison ward, uh, the hospital prison ward. So he um, developed a foot ulcer which is very dangerous for a diabetic. Mm -hmm. um, he, it was pretty much untreated for a good period of time. He developed an infection. He uh, developed a MRSA infection, MRSA staph infection there, which is very difficult to treat. And so 
ultimately, after about three weeks, um, he got into contact with his lawyer on the outside, who wasn't me, another individual representing him for the family court issue. And um, they, they filed a petition with the family court judge that had sentenced him to this period of custody. And essentially saying that, you know, if, if they're not going to, they're unable to treat him at um, Bellevue. If they're unable to care for his condition. They have no way of monitoring and, 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 and maintaining his levels. Um, there's a good risk for either death or, you know, serious permanent physical harm. And so the, the doctors, some of the doctors there were actually in support of his request for uh, essentially compassionate release and ultimately it was granted. So um, had he spent six months as sentenced, um, you know, he may not be with us today. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So <clears throat> this is one, you're suing We're on suing. his behalf? We're suing, sure. Who are you suing? We're suing the city of New York. We're suing uh, Horizon Health Services. We're suing um, the depart uh, the New York City Health and Hospitals Corporation, okay. which manages the um, Bellevue Hospital. Okay, so is the idea because he doesn't have permanent injuries, right? Well, so after his um, release from custody, he went to see his regular doctor, and so he had um, he had to have multiple surgeries on his foot um, in order to save his foot. Uh, luckily, they're able to do it. Um, he had to have skin grafts. Ah, okay. So uh, he did have. S- yeah, so he's still injuries. not working to sure, pay okay. that bill. Right. Sure. Okay. So, so he, he has damages. So he has damages. Yeah. For sure. He, you know, okay. it's painful, right? Um, the fa- you know, the the sense that you're 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 diabetic and you're you're not you don't have insulin. You're either you know you're feeling sluggish, right? You feel like you're going to pass out. People go into diabetic comas. Um, people don't wake up from diabetic comas. You know, there was people at um, on Rikers shortly before this whole incident occurred with my client, where where two diabetics died in custody because they were not provided timely medical care. And so, diabetes is a is while it's um, people are familiar with it. Everybody seems to know somebody who's diabetic. Maybe everybody doesn't know what goes into it, but um, it's something that can be managed. Mm-hmm. But even when managed, there's still frequent complications. Right, right. So when it's unmanaged, you can imagine what right. the, the consequences okay, okay. could be. So the lawsuit is not about the, impri- the imprisonment per se, right? The, the Correct. It's about how he was treated or not treated during the, the short time of his custody. Yeah, the lawsuit's about the, the failure of the city to have a policy that adequately um, protects diabetics, uh, oh. and as well as to the denial of medical care for the period of time he was in custody. The denial of medical care. And also, this is not the first case that that, um, what is it, Corizon? Corizon. Corizon. Uh, I mean, they, they're fairly notoriously bad providers. Like they're probably the cheapest bid uh, to the city, and I think they, you know, they're not they're not in it for the, the health of the patients. They're in it to yeah profit. Horizon's a national company that provides um, health care across the country to um, local jails and state prisons. But pri- but private, right? It's like privatizing the prisons themselves. It's sure. it's a, it's a 
it's well, this a major is, controversy. Again, if you if you privatize prisons, there's an incentive, obviously, to jail people and keep them there. Okay, right? the, but there's even when you don't privatize it, and thank God New York, we don't, but there are many states that, that do privatize, right. so therefore they're encouraged to incarcerate kids to keep the toll up. But even in New York, where the crime rates are down, prison incarcer incarceration rates are the highest they've been in, maybe you even know, a couple of decades, sure. I think the statistics right. are. So there's right. an incentive for city employees involved with those unions, those jobs, to keep, you know, right. to keep their jobs. Well, no think, prisoners, no well, jobs. Well, we have sure. half of the world's uh, People in custody, I think, are in the United States. Something like a couple of, you know, two or three million people. It's grossly it's disproportionate, too. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Those grossly disproportionate. So, so when you bring a case like this, not only do you hope to get compensation, right, really what it's mainly for, for the individual who is harmed and his family, and perhaps for his kids, finally, he might be able to pay his child sure. support if he gets compensation and lives. Um, but it also, hopefully, one case at a time is the drip, drip, drip of maybe they'll do it right. Maybe they'll eventually wake up and not well, uh, I think, deny care. Sure. I mean, I th th that's always the hope. I think that um, the more awareness that you bring to any problem, right. whether it be through the legal process, through the press, through whatever it is, through radio shows like this, then the hope is is that that, that changes perceptions and that changes the way that, that – you know, people look at either people in custody or, you know, with maybe perhaps some empathy or something, you know. But, you know, one the city, hope. one could hope. The city has said that they're not renewing the contract with Verizon when it expires. So the city used to manage its own, um, the, the medical care. Prior to, you know, this agreement, there was, there was a predecessor. But prior to that, they used to manage their own uh, care for, for people at Rikers. They decided to contract it out. But th what they what they did was they contracted out all of the the coverage and the care, but they didn't contract out the liability. So when Horizon, for example, is being sued by on myself on behalf of my client on, in this diabetic diabetic case, the city is still contractually responsible for any damages caused by Horizon. So Horizon has it is getting it great on both sides. They're getting the cash flow from the city. They're getting the city to cover the liability, and they're keeping their cost lower than the contract price in order to make a profit. Well, that so the city can't sue them for, you know, recouping because of their contract contractually. The city is is defends and indemnifies them. They don't hire ca their own counsel oh in these types of cases. They're, it's all under the city's. Um, what a terrible contract that bear. was. Yeah. Or good for them, anyway. Well, good for Corizon, bad well, for I mean. the taxpayers and the, the taxpayer city. and everybody else and the right. victims. Right. So we were talking before about, you know, let's talk about you know, civil rights. Um, under our previous three-term mayor, who Mayor bought the Bloomberg, third term. who bought the third term or strong-armed the third term, we had a policy, I understand, in New York City, the police department called broken windows policy, which was just that... It was about stop and frisk, right? And and from my perspective, inner city youth were rousted. Basically, it's really hard to see it any, any other way. Were were just frequently um, frisked, stopped, frisked, told to empty their pockets, and that's when evidence of criminality, so called, is often revealed. So, for instance, when a young person of color or, or Hispanic youth um, is stopped by the police and told empty your pocket without any 
cause, or, uh, nothing articulable, no probable cause, just because that was the policy, and they pull out a joint, the possession of that joint in that person's pocket was perfectly legal in New York City, but once it's out in your hand, it's in public, and it's not legal, and they were arrested for that particularly egregious catch-22. By the way, we are talking here with Phil Hines, civil rights lawyer, and if you have a question, give us a call at 888-874-4888. So many thousands of people, I don't know the number, tens of thousands of people were arrested. I think hundreds of thousands, maybe they were, I don't know the numbers, a big number over a number over a few years. And the reason it's called the broken windows theory of crime prevention is that the idea is if you get at the little stuff, like the broken window or the joint in the pocket, you'll get the bigger stuff. And both, I believe, Mayor Giuliani originally and then Bloomberg um, lauded this as being the reason that crime was down, because we're nipping it in the bud, except at what cost? At the cost of people's civil rights, and they're not probably our civil rights, people sitting in this room. It's people who have less power in the community. And now that our new uh, mayor has stopped that, I believe by court order, sure. uh, federal court order, um, the former mayor is is on the television uh, talk show circuit saying that the reason the crime is up, to a certain extent, certain crimes, criminality is up in the city, um, it is up because the mayor has stopped with this policy. But the policy certainly targeted minorities, did it not, Phil? Yes. I mean, the whether it's targeted or, or certainly there, it's disproportionate to um, black and, and, and Latino male compared to any other racial category. But, but sure. they weren't doing this in, you know, in, in Merrick, Long Island or in wherever, even in Forest Hills, Queens. You were doing it in Washington Heights and in Harlem, sure. and, right? This right. is where they were. Right. So, they, you know, prior to the the lawsuit, which um, ended the stop-and-frisk program, there was studies that were submitted with it that, that basically would show that the prevalence of stops and frisks are far greater in Washington Heights, Harlem, you know, uh, Morningside Heights, wherever you want to say, compared to Wall Street and right. the village. So, you know, the 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 effect of that, obviously, mm -hmm. is that you know more um, people of color are being swept up, and they're being charged with um, petty crimes. Um, sometimes they're being charged with serious crimes. But it, the the studies would would show, I believe, is that the um, the stop and frisk program didn't necessarily maintain crime and or, or law and order. It was a tool that was being used in order to um, basically, you know, like you said, you're 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 rustling up people in, in the hopes that you find something and you arrest them and then you, you, you put them in custody and that person's now off the street for a pretty good period of time. And collars, you get, you know, dollars for collars, as sure. the cops say. You're processing folks. I guess occasionally it might have led to another crime, but, you know, it's another prevention of a crime, but at what cost? So these cases, look, it's not, anybody who's listening and pays any attention to the news understands we've had a spate, especially in in the, these, the last few years when so many of the crimes, or at least police, how about police civilian encounters are captured on tape, either by everybody's omnipresent cell phones or on dashboard or body cameras that cops are wearing themselves. Um, and many of them, as we see, 
are cop on person of color type of incidents. Do you know that Dylan Roof, the white youth that killed the nine people of color in the church, South Carolina, um, when the cops stopped him, I saw a video of this, the, the, the cops stopped him, they, they reasonably believe he was armed, their weapons weren't drawn. Right, I saw they that video. They took him out of the car, yeah. they put a bulletproof vest on him, and then they let him stop at a Mickey D's because he was hungry. Just, the, you know, again, they didn't stop right. for Sandra Bland when they took her in for not signaling. And this guy's a murderer. I mean, it's just so stark. So, um, I suppose what I'm wondering as a civil rights lawyer, when you bring... Um, so one case that's been in the news, and I forgot, what's his name, Mr. Blake? James Blake. James Blake, right, the former top-seeded tennis player who, again, on video oh. in front of the Hyatt Hotel on 42nd, yeah. uh, Alex, was wrestled to the ground while he was chilling, you know, in front, because he ostensibly fit, fit this description. But again, would it have happened if he were a Caucasian person. I think most of us answer that we would not have been wrestled to the ground. I think he was also, there's a racial epithet used, wasn't there? That's how, in that case, was it that's the one? I don't no? know if there was on that oh, case. Okay. So you're representing someone who also was accosted by that police officer or, or in some way abused? Yes. So I have a case um, where my client was involved, well, he was with his brother at a time of a police stop in Queens, in St. Albans, Queens. The police stop his brother. They pull him over. My client walks over. He happened to be walking on the sidewalk. Walked over to see what was going on. Um, the officers that responded um, told my client to, not politely told him, but screamed at him to get across the street, go, you know, get away from here. Um, and he complied. He went into a, a deli that was over there. And he was followed in there by three to four officers. And... Um, pepper sprayed three times. Um, what was the offense? right in the face? Uh, they claimed that he was resisting arrest. Um, but prior, what was he re resisting arrest for? Uh, if he were resisting arrest, what would it have been for the arrest? Um, it's a good question. Oh, okay, it's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So he um, went into this deli because he had the feeling that they were going to do something to him and he was right and so he went in the deli because he thought they would have video cameras and he was right and um, they pepper sprayed him three times right in his face um, he had his hands up at the time um, he was not um, assaultive he was not threatening he had his hands up he was trying to have a conversation finding out you know why are you arresting me what is going on and they sprayed him um, and they eventually cuffed him. They brought him outside. And when he was outside, um, this officer, that the same one that tackled the tennis player, James Blake, um, uh, grabbed my client um, while he was handcuffed from behind and punched him in the, the ribs a few, uh, once or twice, called him uh, the N-word, um, threatened him a little bit, and then um, put him in the cop car and took him to the precinct for processing. So um, when the this incident happened with the tennis player, because our lawsuit was pending, the press obviously started to look into the background of this officer. They saw that he had multiple CCRB complaints against him, mm -hmm. one of them from my client. Well, that's the, the Civilian Complaint Review Board? Yes, thank you. And they found our lawsuit, and so they started interviewing the other people that had um, run-ins with him, and they all pretty much had the same story to tell of right. 
of somebody who is um, reactionary, somebody who is um, abusive, somebody who is uh, act first, think later, um, and you know would would sooner wrestle somebody to the ground right. in the middle of Forty Second right. Street than approach somebody and and just do so actual police work. Exactly. So, okay. um, you know, it, it's it's interesting in that you know the the same people oftentimes are, are you know I think when this whole thing came out there was you know stories released or press released by probably the, the police union saying that you know there's um, certain officers are more prevalent for these types of things most officers don't have any complaints against them some have you know the same you know few people have five or more right. um, the issue is is what does the city do with those people and why are they not either retrained or removed from right but until employment? something happens like it's a tennis star or it was at one point, I forgot the name of the actor who was in, Broadway actor in Ragtime was like coming out of his apartment in Harlem and, you know, just wearing a hoodie and they stopped him and he was like, I got a show, I have a curtain at 8 o'clock, but until something, or Danny Glover saying cabs won't pick me up until... Or the until, basketball player this week. Oh, that was this week? Well, he was he was acquitted this week. He was oh, acquitted a week. day or two ago. Why don't you just tell... Sure, so in... Um, April of this year, uh, a basketball player with the Atlanta Hawks named Tabo Cephalosha was in town. I think he played the Knicks or the Nets. And he was out at a nightclub called One Oak. And he was, the police were in the area for some reason. Um, presumably he matched the description of somebody they were looking for. Rather than ask questions, they came at him. A scuffle ensues. He breaks his leg. Um, he misses the playoffs. He's, you know, they were they were the number one seed. He missed the playoffs because of a broken leg for a police encounter. Um, he's not. He was with um, one of his other teammates, um, at least one of the other ones. He happened to be Caucasian. Police went running right by him and went after Mr. Cephalosha. And so he, um, like I said, he broke his leg. But they also they arrested him. They charged him with resisting arrest, disorderly conduct obstruction of governmental administration um, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier of the district attorney's office offered him a plea deal and the plea deal was one day of community service and he but refused he, to he take it. But he would have to allocute to something, And he'd have right? to plead guilty to something. Like disorderly conduct or something. Something right. like that, right? And, and um, I think they even offered him maybe an ACD, meaning that after right. six months his his record would be expunged and so it would never appear as an arrest a conviction anything that goes along with it uh and he refused to do it because right. he, he insisted on his innocence in the in the situation and so he went to trial and um he could obviously afford bail and, right and competent counsel and competent counsel and uh he was acquitted this week wow Excellent. But look what he had. Now, does he have a case against the city? Well, now he could, right? Because he didn't take the ACD. Right. Sure. So now he has a false he, arrest. He has right. a false arrest. A malicious he has prosecution. A, exactly. And he has a claim for excessive use of force for breaking his there leg. There you go. Okay. He certainly has. I mean, I don't know what the NBA uh, contract structure is. I'm sure he got paid for that time. But, right. you know, he's certainly beyond the lost earnings claim. He has a claim for the injuries. And he probably filed that we're going to talk to our, uh, our listeners about before this is over today, a notice of claim. He would have done that already, right? If he was going to sue, he must have 
I mean, you would you don't know that. Do What's you? a notice I don't of claim? I don't know if he did or he didn't. But a notice of claim, whenever you want to bring a, eventually bring a lawsuit against a municipality, the city of New York, a county, um, state of New York, state of New York, any any governmental entity. So it could be the the MTA, the, the Transit Authority, um, the Health and Hospitals Corporation, the City of New York, any any governmental entity. You have to bring up what's called a notice of claim within 90 days of the incident, meaning that you have to notify them in writing. Um, if it's I intend to sue your you ass. Have to, you have to, right. You have to notify them of the, the time, place, and manner in which the incident arose and what it is you're alleging. And you have to do that and, fi- and serve it on them within 90 days. If you fail to do it, then you are unable to bring state law claims against that entity. So you have it's important because you know yeah. when somebody gets hurt, you know you're going to go see doctors, you're going to go see um whoever it is you might see to to get yourself better. You're not necessarily thinking right away, I need to sue somebody or right. I re- or I want to recover from my injury. So even if you're involved, you know, you're walking on the street and you you trip on a curb and you you get injured and you want to sue the city or whoever's responsible for the curb, it's the New York City Housing Authority, whatever it might be, you have to file a claim within 90 days. Failure to do so is grounds for dismissal of a lawsuit. So before you ever get to even think about filing a lawsuit, first you have to file a notice of claim. So obviously, you know, that's something that he would have had to do for the excessive use of force back in April when it happened. Now that he's been acquitted, he can, he has 90 days from, I guess, yesterday when it happened to file a notice of claim for the false, uh, for the malicious prosecution. So um, hopefully he's done that. Hopefully he intends to pursue it. Um, but, you know, it's not something that people readily think of. And so right. if, you're, if you're filing a um, civil rights case, a, a Section 1983 claim for violating your, your constitutional civil rights, you have it's a three-year statute of limitations in New York State. Mm. That doesn't require a notice of claim. Okay? However, if you want to sue the city or whatever municipal municipal entity for negligently hiring the officers, for the negligence of the officers in causing the incident for which the city would be responsible as their employer, Mm -hmm. if you want to sue for any intentional act, if you want to sue for anything along those lines, you do have to file a notice of claim. So if you don't do it on, let's say, a civil rights case, because that's what we're talking about, then you still can pursue federal claims, right? But you can't pursue any state claims. And so that that limits your abilities to recover because importantly, you know, they have different standards of proof. Right. And so, you know, the burden for a, 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 a Section 1983 claim is different than just establishing general negligence. So, um, you know, obviously the sooner you consult with an attorney who can advise okay. you, the better. Obviously, you know, there's options available if you're, um, if the person hasn't filed within 90 days, you can bring a petition to the court asking for permission to file I mean, like late. as an excuse right, late with right. some good like I was in a coma for two or three months or whatever no. yeah I mean if you're physically incapacitated that that essentially tolls the period of time okay. but you still have to file the the motion the you have to still have to ask the court for okay. permission to do it 
So Got it. death also, okay. things like that. But, you know, it, it's an important consideration. It, it's something where, you know. Because you're otherwise you're out of the box, right? You're, you're time barred. Yeah. If you had the worst injuries in the world and you wake up and realize somebody tells you two months later, you know, you could sue for this. You may be just too late. It's sure. kind of a good excuse right. if you weren't in a right. coma. So if you, if you trip on a sidewalk um, and you don't file within 90 days, a notice of claim within 90 days, you have no other um, remedy. You have no other statutes that you can, or, or law that you can sue under, like because it's not a civil rights case. It's just a general negligence case. So right. if you don't file within 90 days and you don't prevail on the motion, that's it. Okay. You, your case over. Okay. So what you also have represent, talk about the most vulnerable among us, prison inmates, right? Right. Jail um, and prison. Jail and prison. And the distinction is one is for sentenced to more than a year. Folks in jail is waiting trial, right? Prison inmates are always sentenced. Jail inmates are either um, sentenced to a city year uh, uh, or uh, they're pretrial detainees. Okay. So this summer... Um, in the news for quite some time was the uh, daring double escape in Clinton Correctional Facility upstate in New York of two correction officers, both convicted multiple murderers, um, that got out and somehow like a Shawshank Redemption thing. And no one, and I, still don't, I still don't understand, Phil, and maybe you could explain this. No one ever, I read every article that was in the Times on this. I don't understand how they drilled through metal just like Shawshank Redemption, to get to the sewer, and nobody freaking hurt them. Ever. Right. Like, they don't even talk about that. How are they drilling? Where's everybody? Right. Even the inmates. So, do you know how that happened? Uh, I don't know the, how it happened. I know that there's an extensive investigation by the uh, the state into trying to figure out exactly how that happened and um, to see if other officers were involved in some way, either turning a blind eye or, right, right. you know, but I think since then, I've been reading follow-up articles, not so much on the, the both the killing and the recapture of both of the inmates and the kind of you know funny little side piece of why they were caught was their getaway driver had a panic attack and went to the hospital. Um, oops, the one piece <laughs> they left out. It was otherwise such a great, a great uh, planned job. Um, that there's a lot of violence. There was one individual who talked about particular correction officer that, you know, put him in the corner and kicked him in his testicles until he lost one of them. And, you know, just that there's just a lot of unprosecuted violence in, in our prison system, maybe not surprised anyone. Um, and you get letters from prison each day from people asking you for help. I get at least five letters every single day from people in... Wow. All over the state. All across the state, whether they're in the state system, they're in Nassau County system, Suffolk County, or New York City jails. I, I get contacted regularly by people of that have varying claims, that right. some of which you know seem preposterous, and then you realize that these are the types of things that actually go on. Okay, so let's just talk a little bit about transgender issues, because as I was mentioning to you, you mentioned it to me, I had no idea that... That was a thing as much as you you know that i don't and I don't know what percentage I used to, and I did I was mentioning to you even when I represented a two thousand and eleven Brooklyn bridge uh occupy Wall Street protest as one was a transgender activist, and the cops had no idea what to do with him he, he was a female to male transgendered person um and as many female to males are much easier than male to females because men are so ugly 
um, he passed. I mean, he looked great. I mean, he just looked great as a man. So it wasn't a question of, but when they looked at his license, he was still, I believe, I don't know that it matters, and I don't know whether he was, it doesn't matter. He was certainly almost fully transitioned, but I believe his license still said female. So they handcuffed him to a chair for 12 hours. They deprived him of food and water. They had no operation set up for that. Now, in prison, in the law, and this was just for waiting, awaiting his arraignment for two, uh, two days, in prison where if you're a transgender person and gender identity is an issue for you, I assume it's way worse even for you oh generally God, than it I is for imagine. the average cisgender male in jail, right? It must yeah, be. I, I think in terms of... Um, Victimization. It, it, right. They're they're probably at the top of the the list of you know vulnerable, susceptible people because they are you know particularly prone to sexual assault by officers as well as um, other prisoners. And so um, it, it's definitely something that I think is is generating more attention given the prevalence of. You know, whatever you want, Caitlyn Jenner or whatever else you right. want to say. Awareness again. Awareness. awareness to yeah, and so I think that you know, there's um, certain um, accommodations or certain you know um, situations that that they are that are being made available to them um, in order to hopefully try and protect them a little bit better. But again, it all comes down to individual um, accountability, and if the officer or the other um, inmates at the in the location or housing area or whatever it might be is not doing their job or they're not mm -hmm. um, they don't care about protecting people then you know whatever's going to happen is going to happen Jesus anyway Jack. I know, I'm sorry <laughs> this is, guess who it is <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry it was a transgender inmate <laughs> <laughs> He's supposed to call the 888 number. So what are these? So you mentioned to me earlier there are, you're aware of cases of correction officer on inmate sexual you know, rapes. Sure. Right? And so yeah, I mean, there's... And, and they're there's, not prosecuted. Is that your experience? Why? Um, it, my theory is, is that because it's an underrepresented class of people that as with all underrepresented classes of people, right. they don't get equal justice. So, um, you know, we're talking about a subset of a subset. We're talking about prisoners, right, and of the prisoner population who, generally speaking, most people don't care about. We're talking about transgender prisoners. And so um, I think that we're talking about such a, a narrow class of people that the general news, press, public, mm -hmm. It, it doesn't it doesn't draw attention. Therefore, you know, it, certainly the 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 prosecutors that are handling the Clinton area have their hands full <laughs> looking right. into the escape of these two individuals, as well as how it is that they escaped. And so, um, there's no doubt that it was presumably a small prosecutor's office that has now been inundated right. with. Right. Um, you know, they're they're looking into everybody in the facility to see both prisoners and 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 officers to see, you know, how this happened and who's you know, part of the the, the scheme. So right. um this happened right around that period of time or, or you know, and then they they collected, you know, the 
my two clients that w were forced to perform oral sex on on a, two different prisoners, other prisoners, you know, they collected the the DNA sample and provided it to prison officials who provided it to whomever and you know I don't I haven't seen anything to say that there was a DNA test done that there was any sort of forensic testing well, do they done. acknowledge receipt of the semen sample yeah I mean with the the PREA the prison rape elimination act there's certain things that they're required by federal law to do and you know New York is probably you know they're certainly they're better than Texas at doing it Right, um, right. And so, you know, they're supposed to take certain steps after the fact in terms of counseling, in terms of investigation. Um, but, you know, why why that why it is that certain people that that these people are not entitled to justice for their abusers is, you know, I think endemic of the entire prison situation where there's no accountability for anything. Right. So. Wow. So, what is the status of that particular case representing the two inmates? Uh, we'll be filing suit shortly on that one. Okay, so you filed your notice of claim. We did file a notice of claim. And what can you? What, what can someone expect? I, I think it's so good on you for doing this. This is great because I don't imagine that these are the cases you have much competition for. I mean, this isn't like. I mean, you know, these cases have everything about it, right? Visiting your clients, the their. Their damages are obviously kind of it's murky, right? Because what do you say about what? What are the damages of these inmates that um, were were raped by other inmates? So you're not it's no strict liability like it would be if they were correctional officers, right? I mean, it's it's um, in their particular situation, it's essentially a failure to supervise, a failure to protect claim against the state, which would be litigated in the court of claims. It would be something where um, we'd be the claim is basically that the officer that was required to supervise the inmates, I, number one, let a general population inmate into the protective custody area and be there for unsupervised. And number two, probably sleeping at the time that it all happened. I mean, for one particular individual, his cube cubby area was probably 10 feet from the guard station. So to, for uh, another prisoner to come in with a, a razor-like instrument, uh, basically a can top, and hold it to his throat, and then, you know, he scream out saying, you know, uh, help me, I'm not doing that, whatever it might be, and then nobody to respond, that's, you know, the question is, is why, how does that happen, so... That's awful. You know... Wow. Wow. <clears throat> I mean, I'm, I'm stunned speechless hearing these stories. But why? Most people... people I know. Will listen and say, I know. Well, what are you talking about? There's, the, you know, in the world we live in, every day there's I a school shooting the, once a week and kids... I are, understand. These are inmates. So again, you have a harder time with a... Wouldn't <laughs> you have you got to... A, well, this isn't even a jury, right? If it's the Court of Claims? Court of Claims, no. Okay, so you don't have to worry about whether or not anyone thinks that the clients are not worthy, that type of thing, when you're dealing with, you know, the idea where, you know... Where's the sympathy factor for the jury, and how much money is it worth? Sure. How is that even uh, determined in these types of cases? What the value is of a case like that? Um, you make it varies. Do you I make mean, a demand? Uh, no. Okay. The, for this type of thing, generally speaking, the state won't negotiate until it becomes either further into discovery, or certainly at the not not at the no claim stage. So, the value same. is essentially, you know. It's entirely um, individualized, right? The, the the 
no no two broken bones are alike no two recoveries are alike no two rapes are alike no no you know the mental effects on one is different than on the other and you know whatever it might be i think that there's um a lot of it has to do with um how well the client can express themselves okay a lot of it okay. has to do with the um the person the judge you're assigned to or the the attorney that's handling it for the defense okay. um and She's you know state attorney general right right okay. for that for those cases right so you know it's it's it varies case by case um you know the 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 way that oftentimes that you know defense works in these types of cases when it comes to trying to settle them, you know for example let's say you know uh, somebody who's been arrested in and out of jail for you know a couple years whatever it might be, you know the value in terms of settlement for looking at it as from the defense side from what I hear from them is that the person who's been in and out of jail and maybe spent three months in jail this last time for which I'm bringing a case for him is not worth as much as maybe somebody who has it's their first arrest and they spent two nights in jail mm -hmm. and so there's a, mm -hmm. a, there's a certain disparity obviously right somebody spent three months in jail somebody spent two nights in jail um, and the way that the city or the county or the state looks at it as is the, the first offender with the two nights is far more significant than somebody who spent three months in jail. And so the settlement for offered, or at least the settlement offered for the person who spent two nights in jail, there's a very good chance that that'll be greater than the person who spent three months in jail. Wow. Huh. So, and, and just last as it were, we're a couple of minutes left the show. Why, why do you do what you do? How did you select this particular? You could have been... You could have been a corporate lawyer. You could have you could been, have been uh, a contender. <laughs> yeah, well, easy. I think I, I, I think it found me. Um, I don't think that I found it. I think that I um, I got started on this, you know, representing one individual who I had represented a year or two prior than um, in a in a general negligence case, um, and he ended up um, in jail at Rikers Island. And some things happened to him while he was in jail, and we brought a claim for him, and um, he was happy with the result. And, you know, he would tell people all the time while he was in custody, you know, call Philip Hines. He's a great lawyer, and, and he has done, you know, this, that, and the other for me, and, and that sort of ballooned. Okay, and so, so doing good work, word of mouth. Where can people get in touch with you? People can uh, check our website, which heldhines.com. Heldhines, H-E-L-D-H-I-N-E-S.com. Dot com. They can call our office at 718-531-9700 or 212-696-4LAW. Okay. Um, we're also on uh, Twitter and Facebook. Outstanding under... We'll follow you. <laughs> Please do. Uh, <laughs> Philip Hines, civil rights lawyer, New York City, representing those that need his talents the most. What a fascinating hour, huh? Outstanding. Thank Thanks, you for guys. Being really? here, Thank you. Thank you. And to our intrepid listeners, all of you. <laughs> Thanks for calling. All three of you. And we're still waiting <laughs> to hear someone wants to help us with the show. Give us a call either at the station or at the Tuckner Sipser, 
and let us know uh, that you want to chip in and be part of this Women's Rights in the Workplace radio show on PRN.FM. Until next week, Jack Tuckner, Deborah O'Rell, Phil Hines, signing out.